You are listening to Mantra and Magic. The podcast where Eastern philosophy meets Western magical practice. Each week, we will introduce you to concepts, people, and tools that we hope will bring you into closer alignment with your true nature and your divine self. We are your hosts, Amy Salara and Jeremy Renta. Welcome to the show. everybody welcome to another episode of mantra and magic i am super excited to have this guest on today because we haven't had anybody talking about norse mythology or runes and that lineage of magic on the show yet and so our guest today is someone who i really resonated when i picked up his book i think y'all are really gonna dig the way that he makes the runes come alive because I feel like that's a lot of the issue that people that I work with encounter where they feel like it's this old thing from Europe and they don't know how to really bring it into the modern present moment of their current lives and so we get to explore the magic that's inherent in the symbols themselves and the sounds themselves today so welcome to the show Kadrick Olson. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. I'm really looking forward to dig into this material. It's some really fascinating stuff, I think, and I hope everybody listening and really thinks so too. So thank you. If, if anybody has never encountered runes before, where would you direct them? Would you have them go like buy their own set first and just play or give them a book? Yeah, I usually refer people to the Edward Thorson books like Rune Lore or Futhark. Those are good beginner level books. I also recommend taking some time with the rune poems. There are, these were the rune poems that were for like Icelandic or Old Norwegian and Anglo-Saxon, where there is a little bit of a poetic stanza for every single rune to help people understand what that rune meant, what that energy was like. And so what I invite people to do is as they're studying the rune poems, is that gives them a good glimpse into what the mindset was of the Old Norse people in relation to each of those runes, and then contemplate what that means for yourself. You know, like fee, and how that is, like the fee, the payments that we put into things, the investments that we make, and how it can be, you know, rubbing each other the wrong way, and could be something that upsets friends, but it also could be that sense of wealth, and that, you know, the abundance that can come in. So what does fee, what is fehu, what do all these things mean for you in your life so that you get a personal understanding of what the runes are? Awesome. I remember the, it was one of the very first things I ever bought when I got into magic. Um, a friend of mine were at a crystal store and they had sets of runes and I didn't know what they were and I wasn't... Um, I only had one book and it said how to become a witch. <laughs> so I found like anything else. And I still have it on my bookshelf because it's nostalgic now. And we were just looking at crystals and I was drawn to Labradorite and this set of runes. And I snatched them up and I took them home and I just Googled it. I, like, I don't know what to do with this. And was amazed when I started seeing how many times they were cropping up in films and like other books that I had read that I didn't realize they were there. I remember opening up an old copy of Lord of the Rings and looking at it like, whoa, they're everywhere. How did you find them? In a very similar way. It was an interesting convergence of events and materials at the time. I was probably 13 years old, listening to some really crazy music. You know, it was one of those heavy metal, punk, industrial kids. And I had somehow gotten a hold of some music by a band called Sabbath out of the UK, which is very pagan themed music. And I'm like, okay, I'm digging this. At the same time, I picked up Ralph Blum's Book of Runes because like you, I found, what, what are these things? What is this all about? And there were some words in the lyrics that were on this album that were in Ralph Blum's book. And I'm like, what is this? At the same time, I was devouring as much as I could a book called The Secret Teachings of All Ages by Manly P. Hall. It is a great concordance of ancient mystery school teachings. And one of the sections in there was on the Odinic Brotherhood. And I'm looking at that and how that's correlating to the runes and the music. And I happened to 
across a book called The Way of Weird by Brian Bates that was talking about all this. And I said, okay, okay. I'm seeing that all of these mystery school teachings that are saying the same kind of thing, they're just saying it in different ways. And I said, I need to have one baseline, one foundation that I could use as a control group to see what is really going on throughout all of these systems. So I have a better understanding of the mysticism of the magic of what's really going on. And I said, okay, because of all these, these convergence of things that happened at the same time, I'm gonna take the Norse path. I'm gonna delve into runes and find out what these are. And I'm gonna make that my baseline in which I could use to evaluate what's really going on, what these other systems are saying. And that's it. I just got into it. Runes resonated with me very well. And the more I studied them, the more I found I had an aptitude for working with them. And then I got into the language, I got into the literature, I got into the culture. I do my own translations now of the Old Norse poetry, old Norse, old, the Old Norse texts as I need to. And it's just been kind of like a, a lifelong practice. And it has served me well as that baseline. Knowing what works in the Norse tradition, I'm able to look at contemporary esoteric literature for the time period and go, oh, I get what we're saying here. I get what we're doing now and turn that into practical tools. Because otherwise this would be just great theory, great mythology, wonderful stories. And if it wasn't useful for us, then what's the point? Because it was useful for the people back then. So I've tried to figure out how it was useful for them. And knowing that we have this direct lineage of it through our language, and that's important to say that we have a direct lineage to the runes through our language. And I'll throw this little soapbox out there. Our direct lineage to the Norse tradition is not through genetics, okay? There's some people that try to make it that way. That's BS. What is our direct lineage is our language. As English speakers, if we're speaking any of the Germanic languages, they are runic in origin that affects how we think, how we perceive the world, what we believe is possible, and therefore it affects the magic in our lives through our language. Um, I've noticed, I mean, I, uh, Amy handed me a book on runes when I first moved to come live with her and her partner in Phoenix. She was like, I think this is going to be your jam and spent a lot of time um, with, uh, what is the name of the book, Amy, that you gave me to read? It's Diana Paxson's Taking Up the Runes. Okay, yeah. Book. Yeah. Um, I love that there was a breakdown of each of the, of each of the runes in her chapter that kind of gave an explanation of it. But one of the things that I noticed was that they were all angular. For the most part, there's there's straights, you know, there's a lot of like hard edges and a lot of the and a lot of the uh, signs. Um, and I noticed because at the same time I was spending a lot of, of time delving into Sanskrit and uh, trying to find a comparison between the number of letters that were in the runic alphabet and the number of letters that were in the uh, at that point in time, Sanskrit alphabet. And then I moved into Hebrew and there's like half the amount. So um, when it comes to the designs of the runes and the actual shapes, is there a correlation with something in our body? Is there a correlation with something that we see in the microcosm and the macrocosm? Is it related to the stars? Like what is the, what is, how do the things relate to us and how do they relate to the world? Absolutely, I actually did a little bit of a video on that one. There are two reasons why runes are shaped the way they are. I'll do the practical and then I'll go into the mystical. The practical is because in the Old Norse times, runes were the written language of the Proto-Norse and the Old Norse language. And the only way that they could really document it is sure they could kind of scribble it on paper or whatever. They didn't really have parchment. They didn't really have paper. They had stone. They had wood. So they had to be able to carve it effortlessly as they straight could line. into wood and stone. And it was just straight lines. When we get to the younger food thork, which is 16 runes instead of 24. It was you carve a channel at the top, you carve a channel at the bottom, and you just cut vertical lines, and then you can cut the angular lines to fit in. So it's very practical for the time period and their, their means of recording these letters into stone and wood was just straight line. But I did that dig a little bit deeper and I looked into it that all of these runes have 60 or 120 degree angles. And I'm like, what else matches with that? Now I did create a diagram of a six pointed star that contains all 24 shapes of the Elder Futhark. And it serves as a very interesting map of the soul complex of the human body as a map of the cosmology of the Norse tradition. And then it uses runes on how to connect with those. 
along the individual lines because there are 24 lines in this star-shaped diagram. What else has 60 and 120 degree angles is ice. The crystals in ice are also that way. And so are the crystals of silicon dioxide, otherwise known as quartz. Quartz. Oh, <laughs> quartz. I don't know my quartz <laughs> and water have the same 60 degree angles. So the runes are literally crystalline in nature. So they have that harmonic resonance of sacred geometry that we find through crystalline structures, through the periodicity and the, the angular nature of the shape of the world around us. So they are kind of a sacred geometry reflection. It makes sense too why I've always been drawn to them on crystals now because they naturally are crystalline. So it makes sense to put them on crystals. Although before like that would have been too precious. So carving it on wood and bone makes way more sense. <laughs> yeah, it was a practical tool. I mean, one of the things people talk about today, they try to recreate the old ways, which is fine and great. And they're, sometimes they shun modern tools, like don't use a Dremel tool to carve the runes. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Back in the old Norse days, they were doing the best that they could with what they had. And believe me, if they had access to a Dremel tool, they would be going nuts with the carving runes. I mean, right now we got runes in the thousands. They, we would have runes in the millions if they had Dremel tools back then, because they just would have gone nuts with it. So why can't we? Just do it. Just use what you have, make it the best you can. I love that. Well, I feel like technology also was kind of a hindrance when it came to expressing other ideas as well. Like you, like you said, you stop at 22. Um, there's obviously, like when it comes to stacking, when it comes to sigil making, or when it comes to, uh, I guess, chaos magic is kind of the same thing. Um, you know, you you take out the vowels for some reason. And I was wondering if you could explain why that is as well. Like, why, do, why are the vowels gone? And why is it just the uh, consonants that remain whenever you're doing sigil magic? I want to address that two different ways because it's a, it's a very good question. The reason why you do that for sigil magic is it is a methodology of taking something that makes sense to your logical thinking brain and making it nonsensical. The reason being is your logical thinking brain, brain tends to go, am I doing this right? Am I doing the right thing? Should I be doing that? Is this what I have to be doing? And it gets in the way and it interferes with it. But if you can take out the vowel sounds, you take out the repetitive letters, you make this nonsense shape, you make this nonsense sound, the logical mind goes, what are you doing? This is crazy, this is not, stop it. I don't wanna deal with this. So that you can tap into your subconscious mind, you can tap into your mystical mindset and get deeper into your psyche where you can connect with the calls around, you can connect with your intuition and that deeper intuitive part of you goes, I know what we're doing. This is cool. I can connect with this because it's not rational and it's not logical, but it's emotional. It's intuitive. This makes sense. Now, when I work with runes, I kind of do the opposite. I take out maybe the double letters when I'm writing a runic script to make a bind rune, but I leave the vowel sounds in because to me, the galdering is the vowels are important because the way I work with galder is I take the seven vowel runes out of the Elder Futhark align them along the length of the spine that correlate with chakra positions so mm -hmm. that when I go to intone this, as I do galder it, I can feel the energy shifting. So like if I have the ah sound at the throat and I have an ooh sound at the base of the spine, if I take an old uh, runic charm for health is laukaz alu, I can feel that energy flowing from my throat to the base of the spine when I'm going laukaz Oh, so when I do my binding work, I leave the vowels in so I could do that vowel flow of energy within me. When you're doing that work of, of running the energy up and down, are you thinking of yourself, your spine as the world tree, or are you um, tapping into some other systems of breaking down the energetic body? Because you said the seven chakras and that's like traditional Indian Vedic lineage. Is there a correspondence in the Norse world uh, framework, I guess you would say, or have you just like overlapped the two because it's useful? Well, that's an interesting point. When I took the seven vowel runes and I aligned them the length of the spine, I actually was hesitant to relate them to chakras. Just 
just because, right? I just wasn't sure. And I just put them in based on what the sound was, like E at the top of the head, ah at the throat, U at the base, you know, just so that they aligned with the sound. And I noticed that there was some correlation with the chakra, like Uru, where the U sound at the base of the spine is very primal. It deals with strength and vitality. And it's, you know, the very root essence of what we are. And I'm like, okay, fine. That's, you know, correlates with the root chakra, fine. Anzus at the throat for that ah sound is all about awareness and communication and understanding. And I'm like, fine, whatever. Okay, there's correlation, but it's not intentional. But then a, a longtime friend of mine who has a degree in studying Sanskrit and Old Norse found, and he wrote his dissertation on this, he found linguistic correlations between Sanskrit and English, like the words for mead and sweet and soma have all of this corollary to each other, that there are some similar mythos about like the eagle and the role that the eagle plays in both of these traditions. And I'm like, oh, and even more fascinating, in the Norse tradition, we're told about Odin coming to Scandinavia from the very far east, traveling throughout all of the world, teaching his higher level wisdom to people. And they called him by different names, by what they best understood him to be. And if I look at some of this comparative stuff, like in the Bhagavad Gita, when I look at Uhura Mazda, at Hermes Thoth Trismegistus, I'm finding a lot of the same words related all over the place. And so I'm just like, what is this? But digging back into that one, in the Vedic tradition, you know, we have the Devas, which are the high deities, right? Then we have the Asuras, which are the, the rebellious ones that were kicked out, that went roaming across the lands. Oh, is that the Aesir? The high gods of the Norse are called the Aesir. And the root, the Proto-Indo-European language, the root language of Asuras and Aesir come from the exact same word. They're the exact same beings that have been traveling across the world teaching these things. So there, and because I understood that one, I said, fine. If there's a correlation of these runes to chakra points, then it's real. And I said, fine, I accept it. We're going to put the colors, we're going to put the meetings, and we're going to deal with these as if they are chakras, but from the point of view from the runes. And I completely accepted that the vowel runes and chakras are one and the same. It's like the ultimate fusing. And it's something that Jared and I talk a lot about this um, ancient civilization, whether it's Atlantis and Lemuria, there's this, this, this idea that we all have come from this like same place, this proto-Indo-European type of thing, and that we're tapping into it. And um, I would love for you to share with people who aren't familiar with Norse mythology and who aren't familiar with the stories that we have through either the Edas or um, some of the other poetry, what that beginning place is because I love the the symbology of the fire and the ice. Absolutely and how I like to look at this one is almost a little bit of numerology as we do this. So in the beginning there was an understanding of what is called ginunga gap. Gap is just like we have in English it's a gap it's a gaping hole. Gin means like a high holy, like if we were to say Ginregen, they are the high holy rulers, the, the high gods. And Unga is where we get the word younger from, like young. So it is the high holy young gap of existence. This is what we find in the Greek mythos as chaos. This is the nothing. If we go to the Kabbalistic tradition, this is Ein Sof, the limitless potential before there's light. This is a, like a realm of darkness. This is a realm where there's just consciousness, where you have this limitless potential to exist. And the telling of Odin at that time, rebelling against, here we go with that rebelling thing, rebelling against the ways of the, the Ginnic order is actually a telling of almost de-evolution, where at this time his name was Ig, spelled Y-G-G, which means the terrible one. He was like an ogre type thing. So yes, so there's Odin as Ig, and he rebelled, who's that rebellion thing again. And what he did is he killed one of these giants in this Guinea place called Ymir. And 
used his skull to make the sky, his bones to make the mountains, his blood to make the rivers, right? This is the, uh, the creation of Midgarth, the world that we live in as humans. And part of his rite of passage, so to speak, was de-evolution from the yinic realm of the high rulers to a place of being a deity in, of the Aesir. And part of that was hanging on the world tree, which we call Yggdrasil, which means the Mount of the Terrible One. And it was a shamanic rite where he hung on the tree for nine nights until he discovered the runes. And what this discovery of the runes tells us is that it was made in the time before time, that it was shaped by the Ginrig and the high holy rulers, and that it was colored by the Fimblefuller, the great singer. What does that tell us? Runes are sound, runes are vibration, that they were colored by sound. And when he discovered these runes, he then disseminated them amongst the giants, amongst the elves, about the dwarves, among the humans, and he kept some for himself. And so what we have is this telling of Odin's rebellion, which we find in so many other traditions, to create a new world, a new way of life that is separate from what existed, that is no longer Ginungagap. There's now the nine worlds. And so if Ginungagap is one, it is that singularity that is everything, when it became divided is where we find fire and ice. This is the realms of Muspelheim and Niflheim, the, the realms of fire and ice, really. But I want you to think of it in a different way. Let's go back to some esoteric work. These are the, the extreme expansion and the extreme contraction. This is extreme salve and extreme coagula. That's what these are. These are the archetypal realms of salve and coagula. Fire dissolving and expanding, coagula bringing together to create. And it is this overlap of fire and ice, the duality that can create the three, the offspring, right? The sacred union has the offspring, which is Midgarth. And Midgarth, of course, needs to become stable, which is four. And finally, once it's stable, life is created, which is five where it becomes self-procreative, which is six. Then we can get into seven as uh, the, the spirituality, eight as putting things into order. Finally, nine ascending back into the divine, which goes back to nine nights. Nine is a very sacred number in the Norse tradition. Nine and 12 are two of the big sacred numbers in Norse tradition, which of course nine we find all over the place as a divine number, as a sacred number. 12, the 12 zodiac, we have 12 all over the place, the same way with Norse, which is why there are 24 runes. It's two sets of 12. And it can be broken up into three sets of eight, which gives us the three sets of putting everything in order and everything having it set in a right place. So that's kind of a, a quick introduction to the Norse mythos. We can, you know, there's of course the creation of humanity and the gifts that were given by the gods, but we can go deeper to that if you want to. Yeah, I was just gonna ask because I'm partial to Urd and Skuld and Ferdandi. And um, I have heard so many different tellings of where they are on that world tree and whether they had the runes first or if Odin gave them the runes or how they work with that. Do you work? with those weird sisters? Yeah, let me explain a little bit differently about how to approach this. We tend to, because of the way we were taught mythology, we, we like to put things into the Greco-Roman box, like this is a god of this and this is the god of that. And so when we come to the Nornir, we tend to look at them like we do the Parse, you know, the three fates, the sort of thing. They're not quite the same thing. There is a little bit of a mention of them weaving, but believe it or not, they're actually carving, resting fate. They're carving that. Right, directly onto the tree, right? Sort of. Sort of. Sort of. But if we can take away the anthropomorphizations of it, we move away from the fatalistic concepts, like you're locked into this is what's going to happen. And to really understand what the Nornir are, we have to understand the word urlog. Urlog means primal law, and it is basically your purpose, your reason, the, why you're here. It, you know, Crowley words, this would be your will. But there is an Urlog for every moment. There's a reason for every moment. There's a reason things happen. And if we really get into the Norns now, 
one of them is called Urth, U-R-F, right? And this got turned into the Germanic word of weird or weird, which became English weird. But Urth really just means that which is. So some people say, okay, that means present, but it doesn't necessarily mean present. It just means that which is. Verthandi is a future participle of Urth. So Verth and Urth are the same word. And what it really means is roughly is that which is becoming. So if you could look at the moment that you're in, the things that we're experiencing now is Urth, the thing that we're about to transition to, that potential energy of what could become is Verthandi. So it's that causal concept of taking what is, leading into what could become out of this moment, gives us that impetus. How do we want Brithandi to shift, right? We're not locked into fatalism. What is the causality? Where do we want Brithandi to go? Now, skuld. Skuld is the root of our word should. And it means debt. So the debt which needs to be paid. So it's that which you have to have in place. And it is also said that skuld unravels that which Urth and Verthandi puts together. So it is also that push, like what do you have? What do you need to do? What is that driving force leading Urth to Verthandi? And it's cyclical in nature. What is is what's becoming, what you should have, which is what will become. So it's really cyclical revolving all around Urlog. What is that meaning? What is that purpose of it? And then Urth's gold Verthandi just cycled from Urlog to Urlog to Urlog. Do these elements, uh, do they they play in the same way in all of the different worlds? Because again, my understanding of the the nine realms is much like the the nine different Sephiroth on the tree of life where you're working in um, different uh, layers of reality, right? The different condensations of reality. Is that the same thing? And could you kind of go into what what it is to work in the the different worlds? Like what it's like to work with... um, the different deities or genies or, uh, or or fairies. I know that there's different words for all of those things, dark elves, that type of thing. Sure. I will say that our concept of the flow of Urskold Vrthandi, that linearity flow is a product of our brain. Our brain wants to put these nonlinear time causal concepts in order when they're really not. They're not linear at all. And so when you step into different realms and different worlds, you'll find a different sensibility of time. So for example, if we were to go to the Spartalfar or the Jotnar, the the giants and the dwarves, the Jotnar are really, let's say they're the giants, but these are the giants of the air, the giants of the land. And in a more practical modern sense, it makes sense to me that the Jotnar are ecosystems. They are not malevolent. They are not intentionally destroying humans. But if you were to go climb Mount Everest without the proper gear and everything, the Jotun of the mountain is like me, puny human, dead. I got chills when you said that. It's it's like the Titanic forces. They aren't evil. They're just raw. It just are, exactly. yeah. Yeah, just like a tornado. A tornado is a genius at balancing air pressures. But if your house is in the way, it doesn't care doesn't know about your house, doesn't know what a house is, doesn't know what a human is, but it's a genius at balancing air pressure. And so if the Jotnar set up the the patterns of what an ecosystem is, it is the Svartalfar, the hidden folk, the fairy folk that adhere to those patterns and construct and deconstruct within those patterns. And, And so that is two of those different realms. It is a different level of existence that we can see how it overlaps into our world of Midgarth, about how the giants shape what the ecosystem should be, and the Svartalfar build within that framework of what it should be. When we get to the the Vanir, for example, they are the fertility deities. They are the deities of the land. They're the ones that have more of a, a sapient overview in a way that we could understand sapience on how things can be ordered and how things could be shaped. So we can work with them for fertility, for abundance, for growth, and those sort of things. Then the other type of deities are the Aesir, which deal with human-related matters. So they are all about commerce, about warfare, about communication, about families and homes. So they deal with the, the human world. And in a sense, they're both deities. They both have the same 
capabilities, the same powers, but just in their own way. The Bonaire deal with a natural, fertile, abundant world, whether Icear deal with a human potential of growth, whether that is spiritual growth or material growth, but they are still doing that. Now, what the thing that could be thought of is the Bonaire are the old, old gods, the old traditions when we're a more agrarian society that gave way to the more city-based, the more urban-based societies. And those are the deities of the modern world. Then we get to the light elves. And the light elves are very interesting because we know the Sparta Alpha, or the, the dark elves, are the ones who shape and create in Midgarth. But the light elves seem to be the ones who shape and create in the spiritual realm. These are the, if for want of a better term, these are angels, ascended masters, higher level beings that share space with deities, but they are more like ascended humans or ascended type of creatures that can now influence causality, that can influence spiritual growth. So we see them as, as these angelic type creatures. And opposite to them is Helheim the rule, the land of the dead, where basically mm -hmm. all of the dead go. Now, what happens here is a little unclear in the lore, but when you have a mystical mindset, you can discern what's really happening. Is This is the place where you go to unload everything that you aren't. This is where you go to process what your life was, who you really are. This is sloughing off all of that crap that you built up over the lifetime and that you can discard and throw into the well of Kvergomir. Kvergomir is the well at the, the base of Helheim, where everything gets put into it is basically destroyed, but then runs through the Elevagr, the, El, the 11 rivers that run through all of the worlds. This is basically the Akashic Records, in another sense, because in the Norse tradition, air and water have a little bit of a different meaning. Water is that deep, ancient understanding that the the human mind, the thinking, the brain processing, information. So the information that you throw to Hvergomir is the information that runs through all of the worlds all the time, the Akashic records. Mirmir's well would be that because that's the one where you get the wisdom, right? That's right. Any of the wells are all about wisdom, deep, deep, ancient wisdom. And the mirror's well is that, is like the, the well of the higher mind, of higher consciousness, the deeper understanding that goes with higher consciousness. That's why it's kind of fun that it's a well concept because you dip deep to bring the waters up so you have this greater level of understanding. So do they all eventually flow together? Because I know that it's not like the our concept of a tree in our world, it's like the branches and the roots, mm -hmm. right? Yep, the, the waters flow through Yggdrasil and flow through all the worlds. And so they basically do, there is a whole uh, hydro system in the Norse lore, like the waters from the well go up, then they reach uh, the elk that stands high atop Valhall called Yggdrasil. And from its horns, the dew drops come back down and go back into Kvelgomir. So there's this whole hydra cycle of this knowledge and wisdom that go through the tree. I think that's super interesting because it feeds into plant medicine. You know, like some of these intelligences aren't necessarily in us. They may be some, we get bits and pieces of it from the food that we consume uh, if it's actually coming from the land. And I think that's a big part of like appreciating and, and being um, recognizing and uh, giving thanks. You know, that's something that bits and pieces of all religions have kind of carried over into the big one that we, is kind of like dominating everything now with Christianity. Um, and I, I think it's so interesting that so many religions and so many uh, cultures have such a reverence for plant medicine. A lot of indigenous cultures are that way, you know, with, uh, with um, a lot of Vedic traditions, there's Soma, you know, the ideas, uh, same thing with Egyptian traditions. And I think that's something that we in the West have definitely been separated from. We're coming around, obviously, in Denver now, uh, 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 mushrooms at least have been decriminalized. Um, right. Marijuana cannabis is actually a little more accessible to people all over the country at this point, which is, it's a, it is a good gateway. You know, whatever term you want to use, you want to see that as a bad thing. I think it's a good way to kind of be introduced into some of these um, altered mindsets because it makes you subtly aware of some other energies. And then when you get into major 
um, experiences, whether it's ayahuasca or a boga or even doing, you know, a bullet ant ceremony where you're getting, you have gloves on that are these, these incredibly intense, this incredibly intense pain that you're being able to experience, you're able to shift, realizing that you can still remain inside of your body, but you're, you become aware of some of these other things. And, you know, it's interesting to me as well that, uh, you know, even going back to um, Mesopotamia with the, um, the images of the guys carrying the bags, you know, everybody seems to have something where they've got something else that kind of um, embellishes or helps make the experience a, a little bit brighter, helps it kind of come through a little bit more. Um, what was the, when it came to the Old Norse traditions, what was their experience when it came to plant medicines and, and altered states of consciousness? A lot of that didn't make it too well through in the literature. There's some suppositions and there's some archeological rediscoveries and some of the people who can really do some of the deep dive into comparative, lit or comparative contemporary literature from other sources have definitely narrowed down that Amanita muscaria was a part of it. We're not exactly sure how it was used or what was there. And we know liberty caps were definitely there as well as mugwort, wormwood were critical parts, uh, henbane, aconite, these were pretty prominent parts of the, let's say the flying tradition, uh, but we don't know entirely exactly what was there. We know mead was also a part of it. And so what it really comes down to is let's say, for example, the bear sarks, the, the bear shirts is what that means. These are what the modern word is, what, berserker? Berserker, yeah. Yeah, the, what this was is a specialized form of warfare where a person would get themselves psyched up into an ecstatic state of consciousness where they were just like, oh, it's very Odinic. You know, this is part of what Odin does is helping people get into ecstatic states. His name, Odin, means the ruler of ecstasy or madness or inspiration. And so they, they would get themselves worked up into this frenzy now, the lore says sometimes they would just be able to do it on their own because maybe that was their psychological state. But also, there's some hints that maybe they did use Liberty Caps or Amanita Muscaria to get themselves psyched up into these places. And then it took some very serious things to get them out of there, like a dunk in an ice bath or poked with a hot poker or even the sight of a naked woman who would pull them out of their, berser their bersark rage. And this was like basically a shapeshifter type of thing that was going on. It wasn't just a physical transformation, but they would put on the bear shirt and they would take on the spirit of the bear because their ties to humanity would be loosened. And that is where maybe they were using some of these plant medicines to get there. Now for more of the mystical magical practices, this is where we know like mugwort, wormwood, handbane, aconite, some of these things were used to create a salve that could be absorbed through mucous membranes. But of course, we don't know the exact formulations. We don't know the exact uses. Let's just say there was another uh, religious tradition that came in in the way and said, no, 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 we don't need to know about this one and refused to document it other than to say, here are substances forbidden in use for these ways, which is how we know that they were used, but how and what their formulations were and what the ceremonies were, what the set and settings were, it's lost. It's lost to time, we don't really know. But is it though, is it lost? Like for those of us who, who do intentionally try to work through the web of weird and we do intentionally try to communicate with um, either ancestors or elders and ascended ones or even just our past lives. And I, I feel like um, sometimes they can be both, right? We can be our own ancestors. That's right. <laughs> it's like, that's what I keep tapping into. Um, do you feel like now's the time where we're bringing that back, where it's, it's in a space where we can start to say, oh yes, the witch's flight, we're doing this. That's right, we are moving into a space where this can be reclaimed and rediscovered. And we have a higher sense now of what the active chemicals are in these plants, what they do so we can have a better understanding of the formulation for it. And I think it's a good, interesting mix of the science of what goes into it, as well as the magic of the rediscovery 
And, you know, even what those boundaries are to push just a little bit more where maybe something says it, it might not be safe to do that one, but when you build up your tolerance and your experience and your work, maybe it is safe to go to that heroic level rather than the microdose level. But, you know, it's going to be an art. There's an art and a science get unified with it together. So not necessarily that it's lost, but we're rediscovering it and we're recreating it in new ways in the modern context in ways that make sense to us today. I think it's great that we're also finding that small shifts can make a huge difference. It seems like more and more uh, of our subtle abilities are, are coming uh, more readily available to us, which is really awesome. And it's amazing how much of a small shift it can be for somebody who, like, I, I went and got my haircut today, and uh, my the barber was like, it's my birthday, I'm really excited. He's like, what do you got going on today? And I was like, well, I told him about our interview, and I told him about our podcast and what it is that we do, and everybody in the barber shop just went silent. And it, he was, the person next to me, uh, or the, the barber next to me said, tell him what your thoughts on curses are. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? And then he goes into the story about how first time he went and got a tarot reading done, his, uh, his brother died like shortly after he walked out of it. And there's, he has all these correlations that he's thinking. And I was like, well, you know, correlation and causation are not the same thing, obviously. I was like, but there is something that because you were talking about this beforehand, it's almost like you willed me into your reality so that this could come up for you to process it. You know, it may be something that you're holding on to. And as a massage therapist and as an energy healer and as a, a, a psychonaut, you know, Amy and I actually met in an ayahuasca ceremony and have spent uh, a lot of times connecting, I felt like connecting to my abilities through that experience. Um, I'm also starting to realize that that's, it's not necessary. It was necessary for me at that point in time because I was drinking heavily and I was in a different state that I needed to be shaken out of the place where I was. But going from something like that, like you said, with a heroic dose and then being in a place where simple breath work and being mindful of how you're breathing and the interactions that you're having with somebody and how much of a huge shift you can have in the world in that way is, it's really it's really empowering to be completely honest. Um, Cause I was always really interested in doing these, you know, going into these altered states through these plant medicines. And it's so cool to realize that I'm able to do that just by sitting outside underneath the stars and breathing uh, deeply on my yoga mat. You know, interesting that you say that too, is in working with some of my clients that have worked with, with spirit, with the essence of plant medicines, they have gone into plant medicines. I was guided to put together a protocol that I've yet to test. And I'm going to test it with a select group of folks who through these steps, we can connect with what I call the sacred essence of plant medicines, where you go back to what it feels like, what it's like this experience, and you create endogenously the neurochemicals that correlate to the plant medicine experience so that you are in the moment in control of what's going on, but you can surrender as you wish to, to the sacred essence to go into that with intention for the working. And then when you're done, you can switch it off, come back ground, and you have no, no lingering effects of it because you're in control of the endogenous production and you're in control of when it stops, as well as you can come back in with none of the harmful side effects because it's only that neurochemistry going on. And I'm going to explore that some more with some folks because remember those external chemicals, those exogenous chemicals only work on your brain because you have the receptors for it. You only have those receptors because your body already produces those. So if you can do the things through breath work, through intention, through other things, maybe you don't need the plant medicines to communicate with interdimensional beings to subtly shift into another layer of reality, which is kind of how I use runes teaching runes to intonate, to sit there with intention, and then just sit, let yourself slip into Asgard to meet the gods by just chanting, singing these runes, galdering them, so that your mind shifts into that state and you don't need a plant medicine for it. Two things, and I love that you said that. One, can you explain galdering? Because I don't think mm -hmm. most people know that term. And then two, go further into how you set up some of the sacred space with these runes because I think most people don't realize that that's what they do. They transport you out of normal everyday, um, what would we call it, alpha brainwave wave? Mm -hmm. like we're, we're in beta in a normal time and then we go to alpha when we go into ritual space. There you go, yeah. Yep. So yeah, galdering is literally singing the runes. It's intoning the runes like I was doing earlier when you go loud cause, Oh, 
And you just do that over and over and over again until you feel your mind slipping out. You can do it with some drumming to help get you into the shamanic state of mind. And that's literally all it is, is singing the runes. Now, how this will correlate to maybe setting some sacred space around you. Let's look at the rune Al-Giz. It looks like an upside down peace symbol, right? It's got the three branches going up to the, to the, the upper world. Think of this as the branches of the world tree reaching up into the upper realms, to the realms of the gods, to the elves, whatnot, and bringing that sacred energy into you. And then you can expand it to the world around you. Now, if you were to focus on the wall in front of you, drawing the shape of the rune in front of you as you're singing, aware of your sacred connection, aware of understanding what sacredness is to you, that as you're doing that, you're bringing that sacred energy into you, through you, through your hand, through the tonality of the room where you're just going, geez, turn to the next wall, geez. That sets sacred space internally, sets sacred space around you. And now you're in another environment where you could do more rune work or do other spiritual work just by singing the rune algas. I wanted to ask too, um, I know we're getting close to time and we definitely don't want to keep you from uh, wherever you got to get next. Um, I wanted to ask two things too. I'll ask the first, just connected to what you were just talking about. Um, when it comes to doing Western magic, a lot of the times uh, there's this idea of like opening the space, you know, you set the space, you call in the four directions, you do whatever you need to do to kind of like clear the area. And there's always like, you know, a reminder, this, this like constant threat of like making sure that the space is closed so that something else can't slip in. Is it the same type of mentality when it comes to working with the runes? Yes and no. I would say it comes down to maybe some respect for the space that you're working in. And I'll show you, tell you what I mean by that one and what your intentions are going forward. A lot of the work that I do with people it is what I call transcendent magic versus operant. Operant means let's call in deities, let's call, cause these runes to go into effect so that I can get the job I want. That's operant. Transcendent is let's work with these runes and with these deities to move myself into a higher state of being, to get a higher sensibility. And in that case, don't ground that energy. Don't close space. Bring the energy in with you. Bring the energy into who you are, what you're doing, how you're going to be creating it so that it becomes a part of who you are. But if you're doing work with deities and everything in a space that's shared with other people, you may not want that energy lingering around. So ground it out, drown it out. When it comes to like my ritual space, my office space, I never close. I always leave it there. I do leave it as an open place, an open portal for the entities to come in to work with because it's safe space for them to exist. But that's my space for what I do. So I don't ground it. I don't let it go. So it comes right down to what is your intention and what is your lingering purposes. Right. It makes sense as to why uh, a lot of Western orders also have lodges. Like you go do the magic there and you leave everything kind of set up in there. Same thing with temples, right? Like any of these holy spaces. Exactly. Um, and again, the, the last question, if we don't have time to get into it, it's totally understandable. Um, I believe the whisperers is what you call the, the energetics that you work with. Um, I, had a, um, I had a clearing done a couple of months back with a, uh, with a shamanic practitioner. And she told me the first thing that she said when, um, when we started the session was that the, she said, the energies that are around me are telling me that the first thing that you need to know is that you are a death walker. And this is something that you dealt with in your last life. And it's something that's kind of carried over. Um, what is, uh, do you feel like the, the energetics that you are kind of dealing with? And I, I think part of this also has to do with my, my horoscope. I have Pluto on my sun, literally off by two degrees. And I have Mercury on my sun, which is literally off by two degrees. So part of that is there's communication where I feel like things kind of seek me out to discuss what's going on with them. Like, I don't necessarily know if they want me to help, you know, return a late, late library book or something along those lines. But the energies that you talk to, is it consistently the same ones? Or do you feel like you have uh, multiple different things that kind of come to you? For, for conversation? Over the years, it's definitely been multiples. They cycle through, they, they change. There's sometimes a new one will pop in. And I'm like, oh. And one of the ways that I work with them is I try not to ever get a name because sometimes we focus on the name and we go, oh, this is who it is. But some of these beings never had a physical name, never had any linear concept of it. And you just kind of understand who they are by the vibe, the vibration, the energy of who they are, what they're saying. But yeah, it's never, there's only been one that was consistent and that turned out to be myself as a higher being, but, you know, and we still work together in that way, but they just cycle through. Sometimes they come and go. Sometimes I'll recognize one from the past and I'm like, oh, hey, we're back again. 
but nah, they're always changing. I think that's a, that's great to to offer to people that it doesn't have to be like you're always working with um, Freya and Frere or something. You you can right. be in spaces where you recognize like, oh, this might be a light elf. This might be a dark elf. This might be even like something else beyond um, my word, what my words can structure and getting to know them just by the energetic frequency that they're creating in the room. And, there, and that gets back to sound. It gets back to runes and water, right? Because <laughs> the water can hold the sound. And so we're all That's made of water. Exactly, right? um, I exactly. would love to offer people ways of how they can get in touch with you to do this transcendental magic and to experience your, um, your vibration, your frequency, and your classes. So what, what are the best ways for them to encounter you? Uh, the best place to find me would be kadrick.com. Just go to my website. I've got links to my rune work, to shadow work that I'm doing there, even the paranormal stuff and the pagan men stuff that I'm doing is all off of this website, kadrick.com. And you can find me throughout Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. I'm all over the place there too. Awesome. It's the benefit of having your name. <laughs> you don't have to be <laughs> Kadrick. Uh, so right. you'll you cycle classes through so they can experience different workshops and courses. And then your book, Runes for- Runes for Transformation. Runes for Transformation. And that's on um, Kindle as well as in physical form. So if you guys want to check that out, we'll have links in the show notes for both your website, Instagram, all of that. And, um, and I guess they can also find you in all of the super psychic woo-woo spaces. <laughs> <laughs> traveling through the ethers as we go um, um thank you Kadrick, for, for dealing with all the technical issues and for being on our show we so appreciate it no worries thank you so much for having me this has been really great i love our discussion i like where we went with it and all the different things we talked about this was amazing thank you yay thank you